So I, I was looking back over my uh, notes, and I realized that it was over 10 years ago uh, that I first taught, uh, or last taught this material uh, from the Freedom in Christ uh, work of Neil Anderson. And um, many of you are perhaps familiar with it if you've read some of his books or if you've worked through the Steps to Freedom in, work, uh, in Christ workbook. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm glad we've uh, had this opportunity to circle back around and touch on it again because uh, it came to my you know, realization that many of you probably weren't here uh, 10 years ago or whatever it was when we last went through this material together. So we started about six weeks ago now um, just talking about the concept of freedom from a biblical standpoint. What is it? Uh, why is it important? How is it valuable? And how are we meant to experience it? And then uh, we began to work through systematically week by week the steps to freedom in Christ that are outlined uh, by Neil Anderson in this workbook that I just mentioned called The Steps to Freedom in Christ. This is what it looks like. And uh, we, I think we have some more of these available if you've not received one already. And I certainly encourage you to... Um, to take one and uh, bring it home and spend some time working through each of these seven steps because I trust you'll find that incredibly helpful in your journey with the Lord toward freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is something that, we, that has to be experienced, right? It's not just a, a, a beautiful concept or a great idea. It's something that we're meant to experience. But what we don't often realize is that the, there are things that we need to do to walk in that freedom and to experience more of it, right? So God gives us everything we need. He provides grace. He provides salvation. He provides forgiveness. He provides the power of his spirit, the guidance of his spirit. He gives us everything we need, but, but he doesn't just give us freedom without anything to do on our part. This is a partnership that we've entered into, and to experience freedom, there's a part that we have to play in partnering with God and thus, the steps to freedom, right? These are steps that we have to take in order to experience greater freedom in our lives. And when I, when I speak of freedom, what I'm really talking about is freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the power of the enemy, freedom to live for God and serve God wholeheartedly. So let me begin. Uh, we're going to talk this morning about step four, rebellion versus submission. And let me begin with a story for you. I think it's a rather humorous story of rebellion. Uh, Not all stories of rebellion are funny, but this one happens to be. And perhaps it's because it was written by a young lady who's actually now a stand-up comedian. So she has a a unique ability uh, to to put stories together in ways that elicit uh, smiles, if not laughs. So feel free, I'm not, you know, not trying to twist your arm or anything, but if you feel inclined to chuckle at this, um, you're, you're allowed, it's okay. This is the story of a young lady named Emily Menez, and it's called Flavorless Rebellion. Open the white wooden double doors and step into a building that is 90% maroon Velvet. The smell of old, strong coffee and even stronger old lady perfume fills your lungs. The bleak sermon flyer is placed in your hands. 
the dull piano chords shake your entire body as you enter the sanctuary. This experience was my every Sunday and my earliest concept of religion. Every kid has that place where they feel obligated to go. Mine was church, a place called Emmanuel Baptist. Emmanuel Baptist, or EBC, was a white steeple in the middle of cloudy Overland Park, Kansas. The top of the steeple looked like a sharp needle. In fact, I can clearly recall picturing a skydiver being forced to land at the tip of the needle and meeting his bloody fate. That thought didn't go over very well with my Sunday school class. It's not that I resented my parents for making me attend church. I really never did. And it's not that I don't even believe in God now. I do. But Emmanuel was not the place for me. That was clear for as long as I can remember. It was something about the traditions, the, sh- the slow- slowness of pace. I felt like I was trapped in the land of the sleeping. And even as I started to come of age, my feelings remained. As an ugly middle schooler, and eventually as a mediocre-looking high schooler, I remember still feeling bored. I wanted some sort of spiritual challenge. I wanted something exciting, something alive, and yet it was what it was. Praying and wishing and hoping aside, it was always the same. I have so many memories about that place, and not all of them are bad. I was an angel in the Christmas pageant two years in a row. You could recognize me as the pudgy, red-cheeked Filipino in a sea of blonde girls. And don't forget, I was the lead in the church musical, a fact I taunted my sister with for weeks, a fact that was quickly forgotten when her name was printed in the program instead of mine. (laughs) The irony was not lost on me. Yet among the many stories of EBC... One memory in particular stands out. One late October, the leaves were still falling in their many chromatic layers. The oranges and greens were fading from the giant oak trees and sycamores that bordered EBC. I was nine years old at the time. Sarah was 11. I don't know what it was about that day, but when Sarah looked at me with mischievous eyes, the kind of eyes that only sisters can recognize, I knew that a great adventure was about to begin. Chasing my petite sister's dark braids down the velvet stairs into the basement, I screamed with joy. Quiet, Sarah shouted hypocritically. Or do you want to get caught? Of course I didn't, and she knew that. What would be the penalty for skipping church? A grounding? A stern talking to? Well, for any punishment, we would have to make it worth our time. Sarah halted by the white closet at the end of the basement. That closet in particular had always stood out because it was the only divider between the Sunday school classrooms and the silver-clad kitchen. And I knew that only two things were inside that closet, dusty choir robes and the communion crackers. Barely tall enough to reach the top of the closet, but aware enough to know that what I was doing was immoral, I pulled the box down. Inside, it was loaded with those thick white pieces of dough. And then began our act of defiance. And defiance 
tastes like bland communion crackers, one after the other, after the other, after the other. It was true. I was eating pieces of the body of Christ. I probably ate his entire torso. And it didn't even taste good. Just bland. This was definitely a pointless, flavorless act of rebellion. After Sarah and I polished off the entire box, we ran back up the stairs, surprisingly, without our parents ever noticing our absence. It's funny, the things I remember and how the past seems so coherent when it's far away in the horizon. I always think of that closet, that building, and those horrible bland crackers as a cornerstone of my childhood's most sinful moments. And sometimes, when I top a super salad with saltines, it's almost like being nine years old again. (laughs) Well, uh, so why do I share with you a silly story of childhood rebellion like that? Um, Aside from, you know, of course, wanting to elicit a few smiles and laughs, I want you to recognize that this story serves to illustrate something important about the nature of rebellion. You know what it is, right? Perhaps it's reflected by the the reality that rebellion is generally thought of as a good thing, not a bad thing in our society. Rebellion is enticing. It's exciting. It's alluring. It, It pulls us in because we think of it in the wrong way. We think that it's a good thing, not a bad thing. We're drawn to it, like a nine-year-old to a box of flavorless crackers, or like flies to garbage, or like moths to light. Rebellion sounds enticing. And for most of us, the adjective rebellious is generally taken more as a compliment than a critique. This is particularly true, if you haven't noticed, of um, teenagers in our society. But it's not, it's not just uh, confined to that particular age group. Truth be told, right, the world is full of unashamed rebels, people who take peculiar pride in their identification as rebels and enjoy the delight of breaking rules that they've been instructed to follow. So as we think about this theme and its relationship to experiencing freedom in Christ, we have to go into this with eyes wide open. We have to recognize that right out of the gate, there's a challenge before us. And the challenge is to get God's perspective on the difference between rebellion and submission. Right? Because again, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's true that most of us would tend to say that rebellion sounds better than submission. Submission has all sorts of negative connotations connected to it in our society. But rebellion sounds glorious, sounds exciting, sounds appealing. So while it's out of vogue, the idea of submission to authority is God's idea. What I want you to see with me from the word 
uh, particularly Paul's words in Romans 13, but from some other places as well, is that, that submission to authority is God's idea for our best interests. Like, this is the way that God wanted human society to work, right? And he has placed authority in certain leaders and the, and the, the roles that they serve in a variety of different um, aspects of human culture. And authority, in that sense, is meant to be respected and honored. And it's meant to elicit from us godly submission. So let's talk about this, and in particular, I want to draw your attention uh, to right out of the gate to how Paul talks about authority, right? Because really, whether we rebel or submit is largely based on our understanding and our viewpoint of authority. Is authority a good thing, or is authority a bad thing? Is authority worth honoring or dishonoring? Which one is it? Even in your own mind, I encourage you to begin to think about that because perhaps there are some attitudes within us toward authority that need to be reexamined before the Lord. Are you willing to let him do that with you and for you? So let's start here. Romans 13, verse 1. Right out of the gate, Paul says it in no uncertain terms. What does he say? Romans 13, 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Wow. That's a pretty bold statement for Paul to make, and one that you may find disagreeable. I'm sure many people would find it disagreeable. The point is this, right? Authority is God-given. If you go ahead and put this up for me, Elliot. Authority is God-given and is a vital characteristic of leadership intended for the governing of our social lives. Okay, here's the idea. What I'm, tr- what I'm trying to talk about is the fact that if, if you lived in a bubble all by yourself, you'd never need to respect anyone else's authority. If you were completely independent of all other people and we were not living in community in any real tangible sense, we not, we're not working together with other people in any real tangible sense, then authority, the authority of one person over another would be unnecessary, Right? But because God has placed us in community, in relationship, there's a need for leadership. And authority comes with leadership. It's a function of leadership. Okay? It's a God-given characteristic of leadership. And leadership is exhibited in a variety of different ways for the well-being of human society for human relationships. And I'm going to give you some examples of this in a little bit. But let me begin uh, with um, an example that I hope you can relate to in some sense. Uh, I want to share with you my favorite comic strip. 
I don't know how I first came across this, but I've, um, throughout the years, I've always come circled back around to it. It's by Gary Larson. And if any of you know Gary Larson and appreciate his work, um, he's, he's got a bit of a twisted mind, uh, as you'll see in just a moment. And um, this, my favorite strip, has to do with um, uh, just this crazy idea called cow poetry. Okay? Are you from, anybody familiar with this strip? Here's the strip, all right? And uh, if you can't read it, um, you can catch the, catch the vision here. Outside the window are the green pastures. Inside the building, the cows are gathered for a poetry reading. And they're all listening politely and respectfully. And one cow is reading the poem that he's written to the others. It's entitled, Distant Hills. The distant hills call to me. Their rolling waves seduce my heart. Oh, how I want to graze in their lush valleys. Oh, how I want to run down their green slopes. Alas, I cannot. Damn the electric fence. Damn the electric fence. Thank you. Crazy, right? A crazy little idea. But think of it and what it represents, right? Think of the fence as a way of governing the freedom of the cows instituted by the authority of those who care for the cows, the, you know, the farmer. The cows may think that the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, but the person in authority over the cows may know something that the cows don't know, right? The person with authority over the cows knows where the property line is. The person with authority over the cows may know where the dangers lie, where there are predators at work on the other side of the fence. I mean, et cetera. You, you could think about this and ponder the significance of it um, you know, for a good long time if you'd like. The point is, this simple illustration shows us that authority is used, in this case, for the well-being of the cows, even though they think or they might like greater freedom, right? And similarly, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say this, as man has authority over the cows, so God has authority over us, amen? That might not sound very complimentary. Maybe you're resisting the thought, but take a moment and consider what I'm saying. As we have authority over the cows, God has authority over us. And God sets fences in place that are intended to protect us from too much freedom. Now, they're not literal fences, but what I'm talking about, for example, are things like the commands of Scripture. What are they? Well, are, are they suggestions? No. They're, they're commands. And how are they to be received? They're to be received with the knowledge and understanding that God is bigger than we are, that God has authority over our lives, that God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom, and that God knows what's good for us, and we might not know what's good for ourselves. So governing necessarily involves the exercising of a measure of authority 
that limits the behavior of others. That's the way this works. What we're talking about is the way in which authority can be used to channel or limit the behavior of others. And that authority begins with the authority of God himself. But then what Romans 13, 1 and 2 tells us is that God delegates his authority to other people. God, by his design of human society, has given authority to certain people for our good, for our benefit, for our blessing. That's the way that it was intended to work when God designed it. Now, of course, I'm not saying that authority can't be misused or abused. It can be. And we'll talk about that problem and what to do with it. But out of the gate, what I want you to see is that the concept of leadership and authority was instituted by God himself. And so if you fundamentally, if you have a negative attitude toward authority, it's time to stop and think about that in light of the revelation of God's word. It's time to, to, to think twice about your thinking if it doesn't match up with God's thinking on this particular issue or question. Romans 13.1, Paul's very clear. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And I think it's obvious that he's talking about governmental authorities, like the, you know, the Roman Empire in this case. But I think he's also including other authorities, right? He doesn't specifically say that this only has to do with government. I think it applies to other areas of life as well, where some people are given authority because of the position that they hold of leadership, and their responsibility before God is to exercise that authority for the well-being of those who are under their authority, okay? So he says, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So you might not like that idea, you may not want to hear it, but this verse is actually quite clear and easy to understand. Governing authorities are placed or established by God himself. So even in a pagan state, right? Bear in mind, Paul is writing as a citizen of the Roman Empire. And let's not forget that he was put to death by a very evil emperor named Nero, as was the apostle Peter as well. And yet, Paul is writing every person in a position of authority has received that authority from God. Now, what they do with it is their responsibility, and they may not use that authority in a godly way. They may use it unjustly. But they have that position of authority by the grace of God. Now, let me uh, explain as well here that this just isn't just about the governing authorities in the civil realm, in the realm of government. This also applies to other positions of authority in our lives as well, relationally, socially. Um, In fact, I would say, and I think it's helpful to understand it this way, that there are actually four specific realms of God-given authority that are sanctioned in Scripture and talked about explicitly. So let me take a quick look at those with you, and then we're going to kind of wind this down for today and come back to it next week. The first one that we've mentioned already is civil authority. 
which includes the realm of government, government officials, police, this would go all the way down to police officers. So, for example, there's a chain of authority, right? Um, federal government in the U.S., as, as citizens of the U.S., we think of federal government, the president, you know, senators, representatives, justices on the court, there, and then there are state officials, and then there are city officials, and then there are uh, police officers who enforce the laws of the land. Um, I could tell you a story about that, but we don't have time. So um, just pretend that you don't know that I got a speeding ticket while I was on vacation. Okay. Um, so First Peter 2, 11 to 17, I deserved it, by the way, and I received it as a rebuke from the Lord. Uh, so, First Peter two eleven to seventeen, dear friends, Paul says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And then He explains how to do that. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Submit yourselves, there's that word again, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So there, there you have a clear example from Scripture of how we're meant to honor those in authority as even, even if they're secular rulers, right? Even if they're evil, we're still in some ways meant to show honor for the role that they play as leaders in human society and the authority that they've been given by God himself. All right, but let's talk about a second realm because authority also then extends into the social um, organizations that constitute our, our life together in a local community, right? So let's think about the way that authority gets demonstrated in the workplace or in a school or on a team And I'm sure that each of you can readily relate to the concept that there are people who have a certain role of leadership that carries with it a certain authority in your life. You're a part of these groups, right? So a teacher has authority over his his or her classroom. A coach has authority over his or her team members. A boss has authority over his or her employees, right? So you can think of how each of these different organizations, if you will, are structured with leaders that carry a certain measure of authority. And Peter writes again, just a few verses later in the same passage we were just reading from. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 21. And this is an extreme example, but listen closely to what he says and think about how it applies in your own context. He says, slaves... In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering 
because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Whoa, that is mind-blowing if you stop and think about it. I mean, talk about a challenge to the status quo of the way that people think. And what's the implication? Again, the implication is that even in the realm of um, the relationship between a boss and an employee, or a coach and a team member, or a teacher and a student, we are instructed to submit to authority and to respect and honor those in authority. And even if it involves suffering, Peter says, sometimes you should see that as an opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Christ himself. That's a challenge for us to wrap our heads around. Let me take you two steps, two steps more, and then we're done. Family authority is another realm. And, you know, I know that there's lots of discussion and even controversy about how to interpret this and understand it and apply it. But I'm just going to read the words of Scripture and let you grapple with what they mean in the context of your own family. Family authority, right, was instituted by God. So parents have authority from God over their children when those children are minors, Now, we understand, of course, right? You reach a certain age of accountability, whatever, you become an adult in our society, and then you have your own authority. I'm in the midst of that transition with some of my kids right now, right? And so uh, it's a very unique season in life when someone goes from being under the authority of a parent to having their own authority and their own freedom to make decisions. But there's also a certain authority Uh, that the Bible speaks of in the context of a relationship between husband and wife as well. And again, we don't have, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want you to hear the words of Paul in Ephesians 5 and 6. In Ephesians 5, 21 to 24, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now, of course, Paul goes on to talk about the responsibility that husbands have to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But the point here from the verses I've just read is that submission to a a place or position of authority is a biblical concept that Paul embraces. And then Ephesians 6, 1 to 4 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So in each case, what's interesting is that Paul says, okay, submit, but then he also qualifies Um, the right context in which that submission is meant to take place, right? So husbands are meant to love their wives as as Christ loves the church. And if that were the case, you know, submission probably wouldn't be much of an issue. 
Same thing with children, right? If fathers and mothers as well, for that case, are not exasperating their children, but are raising them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, then children should willingly and joyfully submit to the authority of their parents. That's the way God has designed human society to work, okay? Now, one last example here, and uh, at the risk of... um, sharing this with, you know, with my own self-interest in mind, I'm just going to tell you what the Word of God says with regard to spiritual authority. Spiritual authority, the authority that's carried by uh, men or women in the church, pastors, elders, ministry leaders, uh, people of that sort in those roles. Hebrews 13, 17 is one example, a powerful one. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. If I can uh, rephrase this in the KJS, that's Kevin John Shoemaker translation, it's rather hard to serve as a joyful shepherd when the sheep are routinely biting your ankles or trying to wander off from the flock. <clears throat> now, again, uh, you know, you could accuse me of having my own self-interest in mind here, but I, I want you to just think about the verse and what it says. You know, objectify it, right? Don't personalize it. Objectify it here. And think about it in the broader context of how God has designed the church to work and leadership in the church to work. And it's fair to ask, you know, is my pastor um, fulfilling his role or not fulfilling his role? And is he leading in a good way or, or not in so, not so good a way? But in, in any case, I want you to notice what, what Hebrews 13, 17 does not say is this, right? Question your leaders and doubt their authority. For they're not really watching you that closely anyway. Make their work a burdensome pain in their necks because that will benefit you. This is not the heart of God for his church, right? I once heard it said that the true test of whether someone really considers and respects you as their pastor comes when you have to say no to them. Will they receive that and respect that or not? Will they continue seeking to get their own way and to do their own thing? Some people, for this very reason, will simply move on to the next church and try with someone else to do what they want to do and look for a place where they can get away with it. So, um, in short, what I'm saying to you is that each of these four different dimensions of our social lives together with other people carry with them, right, people who are in positions of leadership, And as leaders, they carry a certain measure of authority that is given by God. Instituted by God, condoned by God, blessed by God, sanctioned by God. This is God's idea for how human society is meant to work. Now, we screw it up all the time. Bad leaders exercise authority in unjust ways. And that's a big problem. We have to acknowledge that. We have to talk about what to do in those situations. How do we respond? 
when a leader exercises their authority in an unjust or ungodly way. We'll come back to that next Sunday. But for now, as we wrap this up and wind this down, I want you to, I want you to just think about your attitude toward authority. Is it good or is it bad? Does it recognize that authority is given by God? Or is it more focused on the abuse of authority that men and women are often guilty of? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you with this subject in mind, we recognize the painful reality, Lord, that many of us have been hurt, even taken advantage of by people in authority. And we recognize, Lord, that that, that's created within us a mistrust and a fear. It's created within us, Lord, a, a sense of rebellion toward authority that we think is justified. And we find all sorts of ways to excuse our rebellion on the basis of our prior experiences. Jesus, what I'm, what I'm seeing in these words that we've read today and talked about and thought about together, what I'm seeing, Lord, is a challenge for each one of us to recognize that authority is given by you and it's meant to be used in good and godly ways for the benefit and blessing of those under authority. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come by your Spirit and minister to us right now. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to to search our hearts and minds. We welcome you, Lord, to convict us if our mindset is wrong, if our thinking is off, inconsistent with the revelation of your word, Lord, because we believe, Lord, that your word speaks truth, that your word reveals your heart and your will for us, and that you know better than we do. We believe, Lord, that your heart for us and your will for us is better than we could ever imagine. And that you desire us to walk in freedom from sin, from the enemy. So I'm just going to make this really personal right now. What I'm feeling prompted to do in the Spirit is just to ask each one of you, and I'm sure this won't be too difficult, I want to ask each one of you to identify one person in your own experience that has misused their position of authority in a way that was hurtful to you. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a pastor. One person in any of those four realms 
allow yourself for a moment just to think about what happened, to think about how damage was done, how you were hurt by the misuse of authority in that situation. Are you willing to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to you in that place, in that memory? Are you willing to invite the Holy Spirit to change your thinking about authority? Are you willing to forgive that person? I pray, Lord, by your Spirit that you would come now and minister to us this morning, God. We're here not just to hear a nice message and to think about some theological concepts. We are here to do business with you. We're here to allow you and invite you to change our our lives, Lord, to transform us more and more into the, the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so, God, if we need conviction, then convict us. If we need encouragement, then encourage us. If we need healing, then heal us. I pray, Lord, in this moment that you would go by your spirit, Lord, that you would minister to the pain, to the hurt in our hearts, Lord, from ways in which authority has been misused against us. Come, Holy Spirit.